This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. Joining me today is Rosemary Gibson, Senior Advisor to the Hastings Center and an editor of the Journal of American Medical Association's Internal Medicine. Listeners may recall I spoke with Rosemary in November 2013 about the magnitude of medical errors. Today we'll discuss what Rosemary and others have termed the medical industrial complex. The phrase, of course, evokes Eisenhower's use of the phrase military industrial complex that the former president said we should guard against. Rosemary, welcome back to the program. Uh, thank you, David, very much for having me. Thank you again. Rosemary's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. So with that on background, likely any student of U.S. healthcare delivery and financing sooner or later is left wondering whether we genuinely have health care in this country or instead have more over medical commerce. If we genuinely have health care, why is it not all Americans have health care, nor will all Americans after the ACA is fully implemented? For those who can afford coverage and have ready access, why is medical care so dangerous? It's considered the third leading cause of death. Why is care so highly varying and in intensity or service utilization and varying in quality by region and population? If we have coverage, why is medical debt the primary cause of personal bankruptcies? And if we have health care, why particularly with a rapidly growing population over 65, is long-term care a de facto poverty program? Alternatively, medical commerce now accounts for 18.5% of the GDP or $2.9 trillion annually. We spend far and away more than any comparable country. Medicare and Medicaid is ever increasingly being contracted out to the private sector. For example, private Medicare Advantage now provides insurance to approximately one-third of all Medicare beneficiaries. Among provider groups, the decade ending 2010, the largely nonprofit hospice industry became largely a for-profit industry. Healthcare providers and payers are ever increasingly concentrated by delivery and product type and by market. Product pricing, particularly pharmaceuticals, remains largely unregulated. The healthcare industry executives are extremely well compensated. For example, according to Forbes in 2011, Stephen Hemsley, the CEO of United Health Group, was paid $48 million, making him the eighth highest compensated U.S. CEO. And finally, conflicts of interest abound and healthcare fraud remains rampant. With that too long possibly introduction, with me again to discuss the medical industrial complex or the reality thereof is again Rosemary Gibson. So, Rosemary, let me begin by asking you your use of the phrase, again, medical and industrial complex. Why do you choose it? Um, and, for example, you repeatedly used it in your 2012 volume, The Battle Over Healthcare. Well, David, I was came across Eisenhower's extraordinary speech right before he left for the, uh, after he left office. It was his farewell address, and that's where he used the term the military-industrial complex. And what he said then about the military-industrial complex is that it's total influence, that it's everywhere. It's in every state house, every office of the federal government, the executive branch, the legislative branch. 
And he said, we have to be aware of its grave implications. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence. And it's so clear that with healthcare being more than 18% of our GDP, we do have a medical industrial complex. Here's a quick factoid that puts it all in perspective. This is the 50th anniversary of President Johnson signing Medicare into law. Yes, July 30th. There you go. When, and when Medicare was started, there were zero companies, healthcare companies, on the Fortune 100 list. Today, there are 15 companies on the Fortune 100 list. That is a snapshot that tells us how much healthcare is really big business. Okay, okay. Let's go on to uh, another accompanying phrase you use. And that phrase is privatized gains and socialized <clears throat> losses. We we hear this in other regards, particularly when we talk about uh, the environment. But here, how is it applied? Well, it's interesting. When I was writing the Battle Over Healthcare book, uh, let's go back to when it was around the time of the Affordable Care Act, huge debate we were having in this country. And I'll never forget sitting at my desk with a computer and watching the evening news. And let's go back and think about what was happening in 2009 and 2010. What was unfolding against the bedrock of the ACA was the meltdown of the mortgage market. People were losing their houses because they couldn't pay their mortgages, because they were losing their jobs. And they couldn't sell their houses. Right. Uh, so, and look, look what, how that whole market is characterized, that mortgage market price bubbles in the cost of a house, toxic assets, those were mortgages that people got that they never should have gotten. They were totally inappropriate for them because they were too expensive and their income would not permit them to pay it back. And the concept of privatized gains and socialized losses. So the Wall Street boys were um, making money hand over fist. And when the bottom fell out, the cost, the social cost of people losing their jobs, losing their homes, that was borne by the society. We had to pay. Remember the bailout of nearly $800 billion? Sure, tarp, right? Right. So we have privatized gains. People took the money and ran. But the cost was socialized. So here I am sitting at my desk thinking about health care. We have price bubbles in health care. Think of those surprise medical bills where there was a story in the New York Times where a woman got a surprise $100,000 bill when she went in for surgery. A surgeon came in out of network. Or the price of the cancer drugs that we heard about on 60 Minutes recently. Through the roof. Those are price bubbles. We have toxic assets. Again, things that people get that they shouldn't get. Drugs that are put on the market that are not ready for prime time. They're eventually taken off. The metal-on-metal metal hip implants, those are toxic assets, literally. They were um, made with cobalt. They were thought to be an improvement, but it turns out the cobalt was getting into people's bloodstreams. They were taken off the market. So we have toxic assets in healthcare. And in healthcare, the privatized gains and socialized losses, uh, the harm from medical errors, from unnecessary procedures. For example, heart stenting seems to be one. Sure. Or the um, 
uh, surgery, certain surgeries for uh, knee pain or back surgery, totally overused. We have privatized gains, people making money off of doing those procedures, prescribing those drugs. But the social cost, the social cost of the harm and the consequences of unnecessary treatment, those are all socialized. People pay for them. Yeah, I can think of overuse of imaging leads to, of course, uh, uh, threatens people's uh, instances of cancer because uh, overexposure to radiation. Right, and so what's happened in healthcare, and we have a chapter in Battle Over Healthcare called How Healthcare Caught the Wall Street Fever. The healthcare industry is following the exact same playbook as the financial industry and the banks. And we have too big to fail. There are, there are banks that are too big to fail. And now we have healthcare systems and health insurance companies that are too big to fail. Give me, give me an example of uh, insurance um, payer or, or, or product manufacturer that's too big to fail. Well, um, look at the um, uh, drug companies that, in fact, during the ACA, the chief negotiator on behalf of the pharmaceutical industry was the then CEO at Pfizer at the time. And just down the street, the Department of Justice was preparing a case against Pfizer for the inappropriate marketing and use of a, uh, one of the, their prescription drugs that was uh, out there and being marketed and sold and harming people. A couple billion dollar fine, and we just sort of move on. And the reason that they don't, uh, they, they only charge fines, they don't shut a company down is because it's too big to fail. And the companies know it. So it just becomes a cost of doing business. And as the banks become too big to fail, um, how can you take them down? You have to prop them up. We have a different kind of moral hazard that occurs. And what I worry about with ACOs, too big to fail just gets bigger. And so I think if you look at those who are doing strategic planning about where we're headed in healthcare, again, the playbook of the banks comes to mind. Look at the consolidations that we saw in the banking industry. There used to be so many more banks. Now there's a much smaller number, and they're um, much, they, they control a larger share of the market. We're seeing the same thing in healthcare. Maybe 20 years from now, we'll see 150, 200 large systems, and they'll control a larger and larger share of the market. And we'll really have a David and Goliath situation, the patient versus these very, very complex systems. And frankly, they're not going to be accountable to patients. And we're seeing that because we do know in what are termed metropolitan statistical areas that there's high concentration or monopsonies uh, between and amongst providers and payers. On the too-big-to-fail, your point about pharma being that uh, the company has to stay in business because they may be the only manufacturer of a certain uh, treatment or drug. Right, and, they, and some of the pharma companies, they do make really important medicines for people. But at the same time, if they're uh, selling drugs that are inappropriate, that are not ready from prime time, that are actually harming people, that has a negative, dramatically negative social cost to society, and they're just too big to fail. So let me push you on the pharma issue. Now, again, 60 Minutes repeated its segment on the high co cost growth in cancer drugs. And we know that they, their prices in the, over the last decade or 15 years have grown exponentially. Um, what's your sense of the bubble in pharma? And, of course, this evokes uh, 
Gilead Savaldi $1,000 pill pricing, and of course the lack of response on the government's part, uh, specifically negotiated pricing. Well, I think the cat is already out of the bag or the toothpaste is already out of the tube on this one in the United States. There was a window that other countries took advantage of, and that is that they would control how much they would spend on health care. And I think what we're missing in this country is the reality that every family, every business, every nonprofit has to operate with a budget where we have a sense of how much we're going to spend as a family or a company or a nonprofit. And we stick within that. And if you have that sense of a budget, so we have enough money to pay for other things, you can only uh, pay so much. So European countries negotiate prices. China is putting dramatic downward pressure on domestic and multinational companies that want to sell drugs in China. And the U.S. is clearly an outlier. And we are subsidizing, I believe, the, uh, the rest of um, uh, the rest of the world with how much we're paying. And that's a burden that's just too much to bear. Right. Pricing, uh, drug prices are, are paying for pharmaceutical year over year. 13 to 14 was up 6%, which was obviously substantial. Let's leave the uh, product side for a moment. Yeah, but David, can I just add one sure, thing? Please. I think what we're seeing in healthcare is what I call predatory pricing. You can charge whatever you want because there's no one who's going to stop you. The same with surprise medical bills people uh, and, and facility fees that hospitals are charging. So we're seeing this, the normalization of price gouging across health care. And we know part of that is facilitated by the fact that we have no transparency as it relates to uh, pricing. And even when there is transparency, they're still gouging because they can, because they have, as you said, a monopoly or near monopoly. If you want our drug, you're going to have to pay it. You know, I will say I did follow carefully through 2014 uh, the Gilead hepatitis treatment against Sovaldi, and there really was appreciably zero response uh, by the federal government. There were some meetings, there was some hand-wringing, but ostensibly there was no response. And the White House uh, particularly basically was said nothing on the subject. Well, I think our policymakers have completely lost control over the system because uh, they are I think that they are working at the behest of the industry. Well, that's the old, that's the you know the revolving door reality. And I, it's just so deeply entrenched. I I'm not optimistic, and I'm an optimistic person, but I'm not optimistic about this one. I think we're so down the rabbit hole on this one. I don't know how we're going to climb out. Well, speaking just to make a point, there has been actually recent discussion about whether the healthcare sector, as it relates to its stock prices are so inflated over the last few years that there is at least a, a minor bubble in that they're overvalued. Um, let's go to, we were talking about products, specifically pharmaceutical products, uh, providers of services or products. Let's go to the payers, and that begs the issue of consumer-directed health plans, which you also discuss in your Battle Over Healthcare volume. Uh, what, what's a consumer-directed health plan? and explain uh, the rationality and growth of those. Well, consumer-directed health plans are those that are high-deductible plans 
where individuals and families are responsible for managing the first few, first substantial dollars of coverage, as some would say, having more skin in the game. And then at the back end, there's high deductible coverage. What's interesting is that the whole insurance market is moving toward high deductible health plans because the cost is just so out of sight for employers and it's a way for insurance companies to keep premiums down. One of the biggest challenges with these plans, and we're seeing this with the ACA, there's, I went online to, to see what was offered in my state, and there were some ACA plans that had eight, ten thousand dollar deductibles. And just imagine, um, the next time you want to go to the doctor under that plan or say you're having chest pain or your kid has trouble breathing, who has asthma, before you can be seen in the emergency department, you have to plunk down that eight to ten thousand uh, dollars. I don't think high deductible health plans in the context of a healthcare system whose costs and prices are so out of control is any means of a solution. You know, they shifted certain the payment burden from the employer largely to the employee, as you just noted, making the, the title of these plans, I find, um, very misleading to call it consumer-directed. Oh, the consumer has no power in negotiating. That's the fatal flaw here. Consumer has no power in negotiating prices, and they're trying to brainwash people and to think, well, let's have transparency. Transparency. Tell me when, whenever any transparency has ever reduced the price of a health care service. Okay. The... Uh, one of the downsides to this certainly is that we know from the research that when um, patients are in these plans, they tend to underutilize because, of course, they have, as you say, more price skin in the game. So they tend to reduce their pharmacy consumption, particularly for what are termed asymptomatic conditions. And I find this interesting, and those would be largely hypertension and high cholesterol. And, of course, these are two over time deadly problems. Mm -hmm. And the last thing you want are people to go off their cholesterol and, and hypertension medication. And that early research was done when the co-pays were rather modest. Now the deductibles and co-pays are through the roof. Who can afford it? Uh, so I think, and I wrote in Battle Over Healthcare, that I don't think we're going to see bankruptcies for medical expenses go away at all. I think they're only going to increase, even among people who have insurance. Well, this brings me to the, you may have uh, read, in the most recent issue of Harper's Magazine, there was a long essay criticizing the Affordable Care Act, stating that really what we traded uh, is we traded uh, the problem of uninsurance for the problem of underinsurance. Well, we're always going to be uninsured when there's no limit on how much the healthcare industry can charge. Okay, let me let me ask you then, we did mention, or I just mentioned, you mentioned as well the ACA. Mm -hmm. So the, the law is in its fifth year, although, of course, everyone in town in D.C. certainly is anxiously awaiting what is supposed to be this Friday, the King uh, decision, that aside. I'd be remiss then if I didn't ask you about to what extent will uh, the ACA strike a better balance um, between actual or legitimate health care and, again, the increasing reality of this 
medical industrial complex. Are you, you say you're optimistic, but are you optimistic as it relates to the effect of the ACA? Well, look what we did in the ACA. And in Battle Over Healthcare, I trace how the deals were made with each of the parties, the pharma, pharma industry, health insurance, hospitals, and physicians. It was largely status quo. And frankly, what we did, all we did, and was to give them millions more customers for basically the same system. If you go back and look, and again, this is a Democrat and Republic, Republican problem, but go back and look at when Obama was campaigning, and he mentioned what, were, what he was going to do with the high cost of drugs. He was going to hold the pharma companies accountable. He was going to negotiate prices and all of that. But did we get any of that in the ACA? No, we did not. We cut out the public option. That didn't fly. And what we got instead was almost the exact playbook of what the health insurance industry had prepared, and it was on its website. And it, it almost goes step by step. That was, was what we got in the ACA. So all we did with a stroke of a pen was to hand over millions of new customers to an industry that already cost too much, was harming so many people. Yes, people got coverage, and people desperately need coverage. And in the short term, that's a, a great fix, but it's a Band-Aid on a, a very um, deep problem that uh, we just didn't solve. You, you, you just mentioned harm, and we did note, or at least um, uh, make note of, medical errors, and that was, again, the subject of our discussion, as I noted, November 2013. Why, again, uh, we've, in the last 18 months, we really haven't moved on this from a policy perspective uh, at the federal level. Uh, so medical errors, medical harm, medical-related uh, mortality and morbidity continues to increase. Yes. Where, how much longer, if not, is it your view indefinitely that we do not take a serious look at at least identifying the number of deaths, the cause of death, and what to do about it. Well, my, here's my theory on medical errors about why I believe they're increasing. We knew back in 1999 from the Institute of Medicine report that we had defects in the system, that we had adverse events that were harming people. People were dying. Others were injured. And if we look what's happened in the past 15 years, we're asking physicians and nurses and pharmacists and everybody else in the healthcare system to meet productivity targets. So they have to work faster. Any system that has uh, errors, when it's forced to work faster, there's only one way that the performance of that system can go. It drives up the error rate. It's, it makes it worse. Coupled with the fact that we're pushing tests and surgeries and drugs on people. You go into the doctor now and you get bombarded with multiple drugs where we've got to scan this or image that. All of that, because people are working so fast, ask anybody who works in healthcare, and there, many of them are burned out. We cannot operate it safely. And I don't see this going away. We have less, even less and less time, from 10 minutes down to 8 minutes. And then we have teams. And communications, we don't even have time for communication because that's engineered out of healthcare now. And the reason is that nobody on Wall Street gets paid for the cost, time cost of people talking with each other, communicating with each other. 
whether it's doctor-patient, nurse-patient, or doctor-nurse, doctor-pharmacist. Nobody gets paid for that. And, and so that they do get paid, we know, under that quote-unquote evaluation and management is comparatively less than what you would pay for uh, delivering uh, a procedure. Right, and look at the measurements that we're going to be using, you know, the, the whole measurement enterprise in healthcare. At first I thought it was a good thing, but now the industry is co-opting it. And by co-opting measurement, they're getting their products, what they want in that they want to sell, as part of what doctors and nurses do every day. It's not coming in and saying, what's your need, David, or what's your need, Rosemary? It's what the industry has decided we're going to make sure. And certainly you want some standardization to look out to prevent some chronic conditions. And that's but, all under the guise of evidence-based medicine. But now who's controlling the evidence? Right. Who's controlling the research? You know, you do say in your book, uh, and it's a striking, very striking comment, that the decade ending 2020 there will, and this is a conservative estimate on your part, there will be 2.25 million Americans uh, whom die either immediate or proximate cause of medical uh, care. And that's just striking and that uh, seemingly we're non-pulse, no pun intended by that, is, is I find just really amazing. Oh, we're wiping out the, the, the population of a couple of states every year. And no one's paying any attention. It's the leading cause, third leading cause of preventable mortality in the United States. And no one wants to pay attention to it. And I, when I wrote Wall of Silence, the first book that told the human story of adverse events, I'll never forget, David, there was a woman, she was a former TV anchor, and she went for plastic surgery to maintain her youthful appearance. And her outcome was horrific. She was in such pain. It was beyond, even the doctors were um, be, uh, just beyond belief. She lost her house. She lost her family. And she said something that was um, portending the future. She said they'll be coming in droves. There'll be so many. They'll be falling out of the sky. And she was right. We've designed a system that is not designed for safety, for patients or for the people working in it. And nobody cares. Nobody's, no one's counting. No one's accountable. And this, and this is the system that we have given millions more people access to. And it will, the system will do a lot of good. A lot of people will benefit. But there'll be a lot of privatized gains and, and uh, socialized costs from, from harm. And it's our job to put it out there to make the system better. Well, in, in thinking about my own family, I know there's not a single Medicare beneficiary in my family that wasn't harmed in one way, shape, or form. See? So, well, sorry to say, Rosemary, we're at our, our um, time limit. So I appreciate this conversation once again. Uh, um, equally sobering as the first, but uh, that's regardless. Uh, we should try to look at this as objectively as possible. So thank you very much for your comments. I'm genuinely appreciative. Oh, it's my pleasure. Our, our job is not to frighten but to enlighten and to have honest conversation about what's going on. And I'll tell you something, the, the people that I speak to, the public, they are dying for honest conversation about what's really happening out there. So thank you for this time today. Thank you again. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, 
or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.